This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Have we been telling stories that we really haven't even thought about? But we use these phrases like, I'm not very good at that. Yeah, I don't do that. I'm not a math person. We might quickly dismiss something we do by saying, ah, it's just the way I am. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not, I don't like to hold the grandbabies. I, I, I want them. I'm a, I'm a grandpa that'll play with them when they're older. Well, let go of that story and pick up your grandbaby. <laughs> Get rid of the story. You don't have to be pegged by something you thought you were 30 years ago. It's not like somebody's going to say, Grandpa, do this math. So you you don't have to be bad at math anymore. You've got a brain. You can still add. Anyway, it's simple to just sit there and have a trite phrase that we use all of the time. But many of these phrases, they're not going to help you. They beat you up. They They actually take away something. They could take away something like time with your kids or your grandkids. Yeah, I don't have time for that. Yeah, hobbies, you know, I don't golf because it's a waste of time. Now, you don't have to go golf, but that's also a story because it could be really time well spent. Exercising, hanging out with friends, opening your mind up, meditating, wrapping your golf club around a tree, stuff like that. Another thing we need to let go of is the need to keep score. Let's just get very clear, folks. Life isn't fair. So if it's not fair, then there's probably no value in keeping score. (laughs) People are going to step on you. They're going to make mistakes. Someone's going to pull in front of you, and it is going to slow you down ten hundredths of a second. Yeah, it happens. Doesn't mean you need to chase them down and pull in front of them. The reason why it's not useful to keep score is because much of life is intangible anyway. The greatest benefits in life are intangible. They're not even... You can't mark it. You can't compare it. The joy you feel being with a grandchild, the joy you feel watching your child have a home run or hit a home run in a game, man, that's incredible. And why are we keeping score? It's not fair. At some point, people are going to step on your toes. They're going to do stupid stuff. This isn't a race. This is called life. So if you feel a need to keep score constantly, then guess what? You're going to pay for it. There's going to be problems for you. Another thing we need to let go of are what I call the overs and the unders. Every one of us tends to take extremes in our lives. We either go overboard or under, right? So we play way too hard and excessive in what we do. We play to kill for keeps. We play to dominate. And some of us just don't play. Think about your life. Where are you overboard? Well, I I collect figurines. I have 12,000 of them. Okay, it's a little over. Maybe you're a little overboard on that. Uh, You don't have to be a fanatic to believe in God. You don't have to go overboard or under. Yeah, I don't even go to church. You can actually go to church and just be there. Be there your way. 
yeah, but then they'll ask me to pray, and then i got to pray. And Well, you could say no. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Overs and unders, we all do it. And it, sometimes it's over, you know, we're overconfident, uh, and some of us are really underconfident. We lack the confidence we need. Are there certain things that take you to an extreme? Are you doing any activity excessively? Do you, do you overschedule your life? Do you overcommit to everything? Are you overly exhausted? Or do you, you know, have plenty of energy because you don't ever say yes to anything and you don't ever step out of your comfort zone? We might want to look at that and let go of it. You might want to let go of what's not working. Sometimes in life there's just time to let go of stuff that just isn't working. It's it's how many times do you keep trying to do something over and over and it's just not working? We keep trying it. That could I mean I see it a lot with my clients where they just keep trying and trying and trying to do to have a conversation even though it's not working. Well what are we supposed to do just not talk? Well no, but go learn how to make it work. Find another way to do this. There are different ways to try stuff. And with today's technology and today's day and age, if if the way you keep trying to lose weight isn't working and it hasn't for 30 years, maybe you've got to let go of that way of losing weight. Maybe it's not about watching your calories. Maybe it's not. Maybe there's another way to skin the cat. I don't know why we're skinning cats, but... Seems gotta, a little cruel to me. Yeah, to you skin, don't have to skin a skin cat, cat to lose weight. You don't. But find another way to do it. Just go find something you're passionate about. Well, I really love racquetball, but I, it doesn't help me with my calories. Well, okay. There's, but then go do more racquetball. You know, I don't know. Just We've got to find a different way of doing things, that, especially after years of something not working. Another thing we might want to do is get rid of our need to accumulate stuff. Oh, it's just stuff we keep. I kept, and I have no idea why I did it, I kept every script basically for our radio show, every article I read, we we accumulate about 20, 30 pages of information that we use for this show every day. And I would just staple them all together and put them in a file. I threw them out. Actually, I had I had Kaylee throw them out. She broke her, she about, darn near broke her back trying to lift this lift these papers. It's crazy. We accumulate stuff like it matters. But then when you look at people like Gandhi, you know, Buddha, Christ, these people were known for what they didn't have. They didn't try to get their identity from their stuff. Maybe we could just throw more stuff out, you know, recycle more, get rid of stuff, declutter. So I challenge you as springs are coming, Let's declutter. Get in there and seriously, get rid of a third of your stuff. Well, but I might need it. Have you needed it the last 10 years? Well, no, but I might retire in 10 more years and then I might need it. Believe me, by the time you retire in 10 years, you won't need it. You'll have an iPhone that does everything for you. Another thing we might let go of is just one bad habit. Think of one bad habit. You might have 50. Ben has 250. And growing. And growing. Just get rid of one bad habit. Just one thing. What's one thing you can just figure out how to stop doing today? 
one thing. Let's just get it off our plate. Oh. One bad habit. Ben, what's your bad habit you're going to get rid of? Caring too much. No, brother. Caring too much? When did that start? That's my defect. That's my only defect. My only weakness. Yeah. Okay, never mind. Don't even worry about it. Never mind. Knew I shouldn't have asked him. Just one bad habit. What's your what's your worst habit? I care too much. So I'm gonna let it go and turn into a horrible evil person. That's one of the great lines. What's your worst um what would you say is your worst habit, uh, as we're about to hire you for this job? My worst habit is I, I try too hard, I work endlessly. You're amazing. I know. You ought to hire me. Anyway, let go of just one bad habit. So there you have it, folks. A few ideas for you. Things we can let go of. Project elimination. Let go of stories that don't serve us. Let go of the need to keep score. Let go of the overs and the unders, the extremes that we take. Let go of what is not working. Let go of the need to accumulate stuff. And let go of one bad habit. Even if that habit is you care too much. That's the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. We'll be back. More tools, more ideas to help you live longer, love stronger. Stick with us, folks. People may feel like they're at a disadvantage if they pursue a new field later in life, consequently falling into career ruts and feeling pigeonholed into their career track. It's easy to get stuck or stagnant in life and not know how to keep progressing. Mind Shift by our next guest uh, is, is the book by our next guest, Barbara Oakley, is uh, a book solidly based on cutting edge science about how to change your brain to feel passion for learning something new and different, even uh, things that you thought you always disliked. And Barbara uh, Oakley is a professor of engineering at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan, a visiting scholar at the University of California, San Diego, and um, is uh, joining us today on the phone. Barbara, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, Matt, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You bet. Great to have you. And the book, your book, Mind Shift, Break Through the Obstacles to Learning and Discover Your Hidden Potential, it, it really is. It's hard, it seems like. I mean, many people might even think impossible to, to you know, break these old habits or, or kind of start something new, especially if it's something to do something you thought you never liked or never wanted to do. It, people really do fool themselves about what their true potential can be. I know I was one of those kinds of people. I I just hated math and science, actually. I, I flunked my way through elementary, middle, and high school math and science. And it was only when I reached age 26, I was getting out of the military, and I, I decided, well, wait a minute. Yeah, I think I've kind of boxed myself into a corner because I really don't have a good professional expertise that people are looking for. I, I studied language and I, I learned Russian. And so I decided to see if I could retrain my brain. And, and lo and behold, 
I could. I'm, I'm now a professor of engineering. So, holy cow! But you don't. You didn't like math. But you're a professor of engineering with a PhD. Yeah, that's right. So that shows you that you can, you can just do a lot more than you think you can. And and I love math now. It's so funny to think. Uh, I remember I was actually called into the principal's office in high school because I just refused to have anything to do with it. I hated it so much. Hmm. Isn't it interesting? Because a lot of these beliefs, it seems like, are they're they're created when we're younger. When we're more immature, when we we don't maybe have a, a more mature way of seeing life anyway, but they stay with us a long time. That's right. Um, and what they do is they kind of put us in, in little boxes about what we're capable of doing. And in the past, it's always been pretty difficult to retrain yourself anyway because to do it, you mostly had to stop and go to the university, and who really had the capability to do that? Um, if you had a family, it might be really difficult to do something like that. But nowadays, with the new online sources of learning, you can put your toe in the water, see if you can start learning something new and different. And there's even courses like the one that I helped create on learning how to learn that can help you to be more effective in, in changing yourself as a learner. And and the brain will adapt, you're saying, because you've also, you've also looked at this not just as an engineering uh, expert, but also as a kind of a a neuroscience expert, the brain will the brain will adapt. The brain will change. It will. And what's interesting is we we often tend to say, "Oh, golly, you know, my sister or my brother is, for example, much better at math or at learning languages or something like that than I am, and so I just might as well not bother." But even though something might take you longer to learn. Because you're using different neurocircuitry to get at an understanding, you can actually be more creative than your seemingly super smart brother or sister who's excelling in the subject. And so uh, it's it's how you it's it's a matter of persistence and and realizing that if you can't solve something or understand something the first time you tackle it, it's it's okay. That's yeah. perfectly normal. How interesting. So you really, if, if it doesn't come easily and kind of natural to you and you're working harder at it, you may actually just be creating kind of a stronger base, more connections in the brain, more neurons connecting to different parts of the brain. That's right. And an, an interesting fact from neuroscience is that when you learn something during the day and then you go to sleep at night, it's when you sleep, that's when those neural synoptic, the new synoptic connections are being created. So it's kind of like you go to sleep, you wake up, you have an upgrade. And that's why it's important to space out your learning and do a little bit every day rather than like lump it all in and cram on a Sunday night before a test on Monday or something because you can only grow so many synoptic connections of an evening. And if you cram, 
you've, you've got a weak set of connections. But if you are working every day for a while, you've got a, a much, it's, it's like instead of a, a thin little path, you've got a nice big road. How a, interesting. A pattern. So, so slow and steady kind of wins the race, it sounds like, um, with creating neuro, uh, what were they called, neuro-optics? Neuro-pathways. Pathways, yeah. So, yeah, and we often don't realize that just creating a neural chunk that is a well-practiced pattern that you can easily pop into mind can help it so that you can do better on tests and so forth because you just pull in some of these um, thought patterns, they become very routine for you, and you can, uh, you can connect them with newer ideas. So you've got, if you've practiced a lot, you can pull in the idea you've already practiced a lot with, it's very routine, and then you can do other things with that idea. It's a little bit like driving a car. When you first learn to back up a car, it is crazy. Yeah, you it's can, hard. You're, you're looking all over. Should I look in the mirror? Should I look here? Where should I go? But once you've learned to back up a car, all you have to do is think, Back, I'm backing up a car, and or I'm going to back up, and then off you go. You're backing up. You're talking to your friends. You're looking, you're maybe listening to the radio here. Yeah. And it's easy to do because you practice so much with it. So that's Sometimes not emphasized enough in um, in the way teachers uh, teach about uh, how to learn material. So, like learning, uh, and I, you know, it's really fascinating because I've seen it in my own career. Be- because I have to constantly create new content for TV or radio, um, what I realize is that I, I every week I'm kind of learning a new chunk, but the chunk then fits into my other chunks that I've learned over time. And it starts to slowly build this really profound set of content, of information. Do, do we – do you think we spend enough time learning, Barbara, every day? I mean, are we all in a process of learning like we need to be? Well, the answer to that, that's a really good question. I think it depends a lot because it's almost like learning is analogous to exercise, Some exercise is really good and really healthy for you. Very little exercise, not so good. Similarly, learning, if you have uh, um, a a lot of learning, it can actually, it can burn you out. Yeah, exhaust you. But if you have too little learning, then that, that learning does a lot of beneficial things for your brain and for your body as well. It helps you to be sort of mentally nimble and flexible, and uh, so you don't turn into one of those older people who's kind of set in their ways and a little bit uh, curmudgeon and so forth. It leaves you more more open and and able to integrate new ideas, and, and also it helps you to be more fun to be around because you just know more interesting things. Yeah. And then I guess so if you kind of take the learning and look at it as more of a lifestyle approach than just something we did when we were younger, this has got to be learning should be part of your day to day. That's right. And particularly nowadays, because 
we have so much that is going on with um, artificial intelligence that's kind of taking over and and making substantive differences in all sorts of industries. And it's not just being um, automatic cars and, and taking over fast food and so forth. It's going to make differences if you're in law, if you're in medicine, if you're an engineer. So you you have to be learning all the time, no matter what you're in. And so it's, it's very... Um, beneficial career-wise to have a sort of learning lifestyle where you you integrate some form of learning into your day-to-day activities. And of course, that is really, really easy now with with new online ways of learning. And most companies, it seems like, would be okay. Many even offer you access to these learning, you know, systems or to learning organizations that develop training like yours. And and so you're saying integrate into part of your professional world some form of continuous improvement, some some form of learning. That's right. Um, let's say, so for example, the I I teach several courses um, in conjunction with a company named Coursera. And one is offered through the University of California, San Diego, and the second through McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. And these these courses are solidly research-based courses that teach you how to learn effectively and how to handle changes that are going on in your career so you can avoid ruts and so forth. But you can learn virtually anything through these kinds of online courses. If you if you need Python of programming skills, you can find a great Python course. Hmm. You can find uh, good uh, business courses and and just all sorts of great great materials. Yeah. In fact, let's do this. Let's take a break and come back, Barbara. I want you to continue teaching us what we can do professionally to um, to be able to to know kind of where to redirect our new, if we're, if we're starting a new career, if we feel like it's time to somehow inject life back into our existing career, how do we do that uh, along with these courses? How do we know which direction to take our lives? Stick with us. We're speaking with Dr. Barbara Oakley um, about her book, Mind Shift, Break Through the Obstacles to Learning and Discover Your Hidden Potential. Great, uh, great insights on how to be a better person. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you feel like your uh, professional life has become stagnant? Have you uh, Has your progress halted? Well, it may be time to retrain and to retrain your brain and see the world maybe in a whole different light. Joining us to help us through that is Dr. Barbara Oakley. She's a, a professor of engineering at Oakley University in Rochester, Michigan, and also a visiting scholar at the University of California, San Diego. She also has a, a course on Coursera. Um, which is innovation instructor, and she she helps people um, learn how to how to basically learn and how to evaluate your learning lifestyle and create a learning lifestyle. She also is the author of the book Mind Shift: 
Break Through the Obstacles to Learning and Discover Your Hidden Potential. Dr. Oakley, thank you again for being with us. Oh, it's so nice to be here, Matt. Thank you. This is, um, I think it's so important. I mean, it was even last night I was talking to my 76-year-old mother who, I mean, it actually was mind-boggling how well she could run her phone considering she's 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 learning at age 76 about how to put up new wallpaper on her phone and I just sat there and I thought it really is a day and an age where there is no end to learning. You can now do it from the comforts of your own home, which should bring excitement, except I guess a lot of people don't know where to begin, Barbara. Where do we begin in knowing how to rethink and shift our our life? Well, let's see. I can't help but recommend a website called classcentral.com and that has a wonderful review of all the online, or pretty much all the online courses that are available. So you can go and look by subject matter and see what's available from all the big course providers. I do have a, a sort of a, a preference in that I really like the, the courses that are provided by a an outfit called Coursera, and they work with many of the world's, about 150 of the world's leading educational institutions like Yale and Princeton and so forth. And the nice thing about these courses is, well, you can uh, you can be pretty sure that they're high quality. They're not someone who's just sort of coming up with something that's not research-based and so forth. They're, they're very high um, level of academic rigor at the same time that they're they're often just really fun and interesting and fascinating so that's a class central i think is a really good way to start and particularly focusing on coursera's courses um my my two courses are um I teach with Turn Sanowski. He's the Francis Crick professor at the Salk Institute, and they are learning how to learn, which is that's pretty much a, a a great starter course for anyone who wants to retool their life mm. and and learn something new, no matter what age they are. And the second is Mind Shift, um, and of course, my book is about exactly that as uh, as well. And the book goes deeper into well, I got to travel all over the world to meet really cool learners who have made significant changes in their lives, things they thought they could never do. And just reading about these kinds of, of inspirational stories can give you a lot of ideas. It's always hard to to guide someone about how they could or should change, in part because they're there's so many different ways you can go and often you can go you can change much more than you ever think you can you can you, you can kind of dream big and uh so at any rate in the book I was able to well for the book I met many of the the world's leading neuroscientists and or some of them and and discussed what they're doing um and how their research provides insight onto how we can learn more effectively, even as we grow, you know, pretty old. 
uh, interestingly enough, one of the most beneficial things we can do to help keep our our sharpness, even in our 90s, is to play action-style video games. Really? Action-style oh. video games help keep you fresh. Isn't that funny? That's it's great. All the stuff we tell kids, no, no, don't huh? do that. And, uh, but, and they also improve your eyesight, uh, even, so that you can read pill bottles better. You, you can see that deer that's just jumping out of the, the edge of the road uh, yeah. and react more quickly. So that's a, a, a great thing uh, to do is, is playing action video games. In fact, some of the first ones are going up for potential FDA approval. Really? Can you can you imagine that? You so know, it's a treatment is, process, some kind of a treatment. Yes. So <laughs> your brain is kind of like getting a little, you know, lax with age and so forth. Well, they could prescribe you a video game. And uh, How great is that? I mean, this is an interesting – this is where maybe grandkids could come in and play with grandma and grandpa, teach them how to play. Exactly. How neat right. would that be? And it's actually – it's fun, too, because you get to interact together, and if you play some of these video games, you'll see just how how much sort of team spirit there yeah. actually is in them. And it, it, it's, a, it's something that could be really fun to do as a family. I love that idea, too. And boy, what a generational skip where the parents that complain about the kids playing too much and the grandparents that need more of that play... What a what a great combination. <laughs> that it and it, what's fun too is the kids can kind of feel like, well, I've got something to contribute right. uh, instead of the other way around as it often is. Yeah, so true. What um because I guess what you're saying to us Barbara is there's so many options out there and opportunities. If I'm somebody, let's say I'm working in a sales force and I'm just getting burnt out. I'm tired of selling what I what I do every day. But I could go home at night and maybe just slowly open up a course on one of these sites, Class Central or Coursera or wherever, and start learning. If I've always wanted to be a photographer, I could go start taking photography classes or um, you know learning how to work you know um, and 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 color the pictures and manage the pictures better in some software program. You're just saying start doing what you're passionate about. Do it on the side. Do it slowly. Let it grow slowly in you. And then, I guess, see where it takes you. You are so right. And I love how you use that word slowly. I think one of the biggest challenges I had initially when I just thought I couldn't learn math and science when I was growing up was I always thought, gosh, if I just sit down and try to solve this problem and I can't solve it or understand this concept, that I must be stupid, yeah. uh, that I have no talent for math. And that's, that's actually not true at all. That's your brain oftentimes needs to be presented with the material and then you have to back away, do something different, take a break or whatever, and come back and then it will click. And this is a kind of a slower process. But if you set things up, 
so you can take your time as you're learning, which you can with the online learning materials, you can learn virtually anything, and especially things that you're really passionate about. There's just so much. Oh, photography courses, there's some fantastic material out there. Hmm. I um, I got my Ph.D. program. I mean, I got my Ph.D. doing a program where you were supposed to learn to be a scholar, so learn to think kind of in a – in uh, the scientific methodology and, and um, think kind of in a scholarly way, but also as a practitioner, where simultaneously I was supposed to be practicing it. What, what are the benefits of being a, a learner practitioner and practicing and learning and learning and, and, and doing this over time? I mean, one thing you mentioned earlier is that as I learn a skill, I, I can then add to that skill the next week and then keep adding and adding and adding um, so it becomes it becomes you know just a basis of upon which I will grow everything else. What are other benefits of learning and practicing and learning and practicing? Well, that is really you put your finger exactly on what it takes to truly learn the material. You need to be actively engaging, actively doing something. For example, in my engineering classes, uh, I had a student who came up and he was like, oh, I'm doing so terrible. I, I, it's because I, I can't really understand you very well. Um, he, was, um, he, was, he spoke English as an additional language. And it turns out he understood me really well and he actually spoke English very well. His real challenge was he didn't know to actively grapple with the material. So when I'd say, uh, stop now and uh, in a video and work the work this problem yourself. He'd say, "Ah, I got it," and he'd skip right over it. Mm. And once we figured this problem out in his learning, that he was he was just kind of thinking he got it and he understood it and he wasn't actively doing it. Then all of a sudden, his grades just bumped right up. Mm. So. Actively involving yourself with the materials, it's amazing what you can learn um, online. For example, the, I believe it was the um, gold medal winner in javelin throw in the most recent Olympics. He couldn't afford to go to any of the you know the meets overseas or anything. He was, he was from a disadvantaged background, so he just watched YouTube videos. Huh. And taught himself the great techniques and ended up winning. Unbelievable! So what what is available now for you to learn from, if you're willing to actively engage with it, is unbelievable. That's so great! What a great story. Um, as we wrap up, talk about what learning does to us for our health. I mean, learning makes us happier, doesn't it? Growing and learning and developing makes us happier. You also said it makes us it makes us less of a curmudgeon. We're actually more adaptable. We're fun to be around. But does it really impact our health? It does. There's evidence that when you when you, for example, if you read a book for three hours or so a week, you your lifespan is extended. You know, in the big study that they did, it looks like it extends your life for around three years Holy on cow. average. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. But what learning does is it, you have new neurons being born every day in your hippocampus. But if you're not learning anything new, 
it's like there's no trellis there, so the vines just die. Hmm. But if you're learning new things, then the new neurons have something to link onto, and they they grow and they thrive. So what learning does is it gives you this sort of um, neural reserve of, of extra neurons and extra synoptic connections that helps to, as you age and you lose some of those connections, well, you've got new ones coming on board. And so it helps, it helps so that you maintain your, your smartness and your mental acuity and you're not just kind of getting, you know, kind of losing it a little bit as you get older, but instead you're maintaining everything that you had and even more. Mm, great, great, uh, great insight. Well, Barbara, thank you for your time, your great work um, on helping us create that mind shift and have that lifelong learning. Mind Shift is the name of her book, Break Through the Obstacles to Learning and Discover Your Hidden Potential. Just Google Barbara Oakley and you can, you'll can you be able to get to her her classes, those trainings that she's, she's designed um, to help you become a lifelong learner. Wonderful insight, folks. Helping you be the good in the world. And a lot of times it just takes some learning and a, a consistent path of, of uh, learning. Something, you, some, something you're interested in anyway, right? We'll take a break. We'll be back. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, lots of ways to find passion and excitement in your life. One way, I guess, is some continuous learning. But Terry might Terry brings up the idea that maybe it's just having a really good name. Just having a good name or a name. Any name. It's good. This guy's name's Joe McGrath. McGrath. He got on Facebook last week, and there was uh, some notification he had about a free trip to Spain. Now, if yeah. you jump on Facebook and there's a little message saying, hey, free trip to Spain, what do you think that is? Uh, it's a ploy to get you to buy some direct sell. Thing. Yeah, or some someone trying to steal your personal information or something. It says, with a 21-year-old Manchester, England resident, thought it sounded like a hoax, but he said the invitation kept replaying in his head, and soon he found himself on the phone with a man who sounded quite ingenious. A group had planned a surprise trip to uh, Majorca for a friend's yeah. 30th birthday. Is it an island or... I think it is. I think it is. And the man sounded quite genuine. They planned this trip for the guy's 30th birthday, but their friend Joe McGrath wasn't able to go. So, and they didn't want to, you know, have to get back the plane ticket or hotel room that was already in his name, go to, let it go to waste. So they messaged 15 other Joe McGraths on Facebook, and only one was stupid enough to reply, and he goes, that was me. So, I'd, I'd love to go. So he went on this trip with perfect strangers. He goes, but oh, the fake, fake Joe, as the birthday group reportedly took to calling him, talked it over with his uh, girlfriend and boss and decided to take the leap and enjoy the three-day trip, according to the local newspaper. How cool post. for him. He scored. So he, now that he's back, he says he has 10 friends from Bristol, a city about three hours south of him, where an absolutely lovely group of people, and he's planning to invite them to Manchester for a thank you night out. Holy cow. That's great. It's good, it's good, to, have, it's good to have friends, and it's good to have the right name. Yeah. And with the right name, maybe you'll just go meet a whole new group of friends. Now, what happens if they don't need the other McGrath? Maybe huh? they don't need him anymore. Well, he's fake Joe. The other yeah. guy's real Joe. Yeah. Mm. See how this works? Joe, 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 Maybe don't do that. We're treading water on that one. That's kind of awkward. Okay, folks, we'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. One more hour straight ahead. 
The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I love talking to people that are at the top of their field, right? The top of their game. I mean, some people are sitting there like, well, I don't like people that try to make it sound that simple. And, um, you know, you don't have to go chasing money. You don't have to go be in love with money. And But the reality is there are people, and if you've ever been around somebody, I just sat down with somebody yesterday that is running a huge company, multi-billion dollar company. And he, with thousands of employees and tens of thousands of employees, and it's it's interesting how organized he really is and how it all comes down to very basic principles in his mind, in his, in his head. It really is about principles. And I think that's all Brian was teaching us is there's just certain principles that are going to lead to success. You can argue against them if you want, but it's hard to argue that companies that focus on sales make more sales. I mean, if if all of a sudden the average uh, corporation is spending 25% of their workforce, 30% of their money on creating and generating sales, and uh, a little homegrown business is spending 10% on sales, wouldn't it make sense that the corporation's going to make more money? Right? That's not brain surgery. And yet, as a small business owner, it's hard to focus on sales if you don't love sales. I'd rather create content any day, but that's useless if no one's going to go sell the content. So if you want a company to succeed, you really need to do what works. How about just long-term thinking versus short-term thinking? Have you been so busy just living your life day in and day out that you didn't plan ahead for something down the road? You ever had a trip that you knew you were going to take in, you know, six months from now? And then you waited till three weeks before to get your passport? Oh, just long-term thinking, you know, it helps. It's not perfect, but it, it can certainly help. So anyway, it's, uh, it's just some basic information. Um, and, uh, but also, I think if you just look at uh, like Brian Tracy's success rate, it's pretty good. Pretty good. You, if you're selling millions and millions of books a year, you're doing you're doing okay. Doesn't make doesn't mean it's all perfect and great. But he's living his principles. He is creating sales. He is an entrepreneur. He is looking long term. If you're trying to grow a business, you probably ought to grow some of those principles as well. But there might be more uh, other things we can be doing. Let me give you a few more that that will definitely impact your ability to, to live better. We might actually need to go back into our lives and eliminate some things, right? Get rid of certain things. There's a Listen to this story of a 90-year-old woman um, from Michigan decided to turn her cancer diagnosis into an excuse to travel across the United States. The woman named Norma 
is accompanied by her son, Tim, daughter-in-law, Ramey, and their poodle, Ringo. And they are out documenting their adventures via Facebook page, Driving Miss Norma. (laughs) Norma learned of her cancer within two weeks of her husband's death and told her son prior to the diagnosis that she had no interest in treatment. Her son and his wife then explained to the doctor they would be driving her around the country in her RV and ultimately receiving his blessing. As doctors, we see what cancer treatment looks like every day, he said. ICU, nursing homes, awful side effects, and honestly, there is no guarantee she will survive the initial surgery to remove the mass. You're doing exactly what I want to do in this situation. Have a fantastic trip, the doctor said. In August, the family upgraded their motor home to a larger 36-foot model and began their trip by traveling to Mount Rushmore in South Dakota before continuing through the country, visiting other landmarks, historical sites such as Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Ramey uh, told ABC News that in addition to seeing the sites and gaining more than 100,000 likes on her Facebook page, Norma's health seems to be improving. How cool is that? She's getting better, maybe, or at least feeling better. She's receiving the benefits of being different, doing something different. Notice she set a goal. She's figured out how the goal is going to work. What a great way. If, if, you gotta, if you got cancer and you got to deal with cancer, it sure sounds like a better way to do it. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. It's just technology. But I'm telling you, I have a feeling we are getting lulled to sleep. And we are sleeping through our own lives. The minute you have a free second, do you reach for your cell phone? Do you have to go check Facebook to see what your million friends are doing or have done? What is it doing to us? It's killing us. And again, it's just tech. I get it. It's just technology. However, this is still your life. And if you're going to spend the rest of your life just caught up in technology, what lesson are we sending our children? So before we sit there and try to fix our children's use of technology, make sure you take a really strong inventory of yourself. Are you addicted? If you lost your phone, would your life completely fall apart? Well, yeah. Who would I, who would I like? Well, I don't know. But that's pretty pitiful because if you lost your phone, you're still you, right? Well, yeah, but I don't know my friends' names or their numbers. Well, that's weird. Maybe they're not your real friends then. Come on. Come on. Hey, uh, you know, tech is being used everywhere. If you, I don't know if you heard this story about uh, cops. Um, North, Northeast Ohio police are hoping to figure out who left a bag of methamphetamine in a hotel, I guess. And they, they, they feel horrible. The police department feels horrible for the owner's loss and wants to help. The tongue-in-cheek message was posted Tuesday to the Macedonia Police Facebook page and asked the owners of the drugs to call or stop by to claim them so officers can, in their words, make your day. It's a trap! A photograph shows a baggie containing what detectives say is about a gram of high-grade crystal methamphetamine, worth as much as 160 bucks. 
the detective at the department about 20 miles southeast of Cleveland, said there were numerous empty bags in the hotel trash can. Police haven't identified who rented the room using a a gift card. Um, So if you're out there and you've lost $160 worth of high-grade crystal meth, about a gram's worth, give them a call. Or give us a call. No, don't give us a call. (laughs) No, 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 no. Don't give us a call. Ben, give the Macedonia Police Department a call. They're worried. They're worried about you. See, you can use tech to help people who have lost things. It's that simple. By the way, I used tech to find my my iPad once when I dropped it off my car, actually. I left it on my hood of my car. I drove away. I, I've only heard of, like, women doing that with their purses. Okay. Well, you need to get out more. Ben, because I'm not a woman and it wasn't in a purse. It was on my roof of my car and I drove away. And I called my son and I'm like, have you seen my iPad? And he's like, no. And I said, it's missing. I lost it. And I was terrified. And he's like, well, Dad, have you looked it up? Have you have you tried to the find my iPhone app and the find my iPad app? And I'm like, no, what are you talking about? And about a minute later, he had found my iPad. He said, Dad, I found your iPad. It's traveling south on I-15. <gasps> what? Anyway, we te- we contacted the iPad, told him to call this number. We know where you are. And within about an hour, hour and a half, we had our iPad back. Pretty cool. Tech is good. Tech making me happy. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. More fun, more tools to help you live longer and stronger. Stick with us. This past election has caused journalists uh, to look at their profession to determine what the future of journalism really is. Whether a nonpartisan journalist fact-checked the president they chose to be labeled as part of the liberal media or to intentionally leave the fact unchecked, what are you supposed to do? Do you leave it unchecked and just let the president say what he wants? Do you check the president and then be labeled as a, you know, a partisan journalist? Did this past election cycle have any nonpartisan media coverage? Does nonpartisan journalism have a future in our modern-day political world? Well, here to answer some of these questions is Professor Justin Buechler. He's a professor of political science at Case Western University and uh, is, is going to help us sort through some of this. Justin, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. So, boy, uh, as a journalism student, now uh, – 30 years into a profession here. Talk to me. Uh, it seems like this journalistic ethic of being nonpartisan is it's it's really up in the air now. Are we now questioning whether partisan or nonpartisan journalism has a future? Are we to that point? Um, I think we are. I mean, this is this is a difficult environment. Um and there are a couple of problems. I think it's it's the relationship between two issues. Uh, we have two things going on simultaneously. There is a complicated media environment that consists of journalists who try to be nonpartisan and try to be 
uh, objective about how they cover politics, trying to coexist with journalists who are more opinion-based. And we have a combination of that and really asymmetric politics. The complicated media environment of nonpartisan journalists and opinion-based journalists would work a little bit better if we had symmetric politics where the parties were sort of equally ideologically extreme and both followed the same rules. But that's really been breaking down and broke down a lot in, in the 2016 election with Trump and fact-checking, as you said, where Trump would simply say uh, things that just weren't true a lot, and journalists had to figure out how they would deal with somebody who just sort of lies on an unprecedented scale. And and when you say lies, I mean, again, every partisan out there, everybody listening that is pro-Trump or against Trump, um, tell, tell us, because there are now organizations that do nothing in a nonpartisan way, usually it seems like, to, but to try to determine if what they're saying is factually correct. So what when you say lying, that's because PolitiFact or other organizations and may, what are some other names of these organizations that are checking the truth of what's being said? Well, uh, every newspaper that has a fact-checking operation will uh, sort of have their own little system. So they will count up. I think Washington Post counts up Pinocchios or something. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head which one has Pinocchios. I think that one's Washington Post. Somebody can look that up uh, and fact-check me on that, I guess. Um, but everybody has their own little operation. But, I mean, the problem is there there is such a thing as objective reality. And uh, every proper uh, media organization is supposed to engage in some sort of fact-checking in how they write their stories. Um, and a lot of uh, media organizations have been struggling with how to deal with a candidate who will simply say things uh, that – uh, are are just blatantly false. Mm. By the way, you um, you were right, Justin. It is uh, it is the post that ah, okay. that, that so goes with I Pinocchio's, that and that's that's the okay. that's the problem you're saying is be, if if Hillary Clinton uh, was had was lying to the degree that Donald Trump was lying, then there would be parity and symmetry, and then all the media could beat up either side and it wouldn't seem like anyone's being favored. But when when there's not the parody, you're saying Donald, like, for example, Donald Trump lying a lot more, then it looks like everybody is partisan against Donald Trump. Well, and the problem then is from a voter's perspective, and that's really how I've been thinking about this in my research. So if you think about this strategically from a voter's perspective, where this gets muddled is... It's easy for those of us who are very politically aware and willing to sort of check our own internal biases to hear a statement about uh, the Chinese created global warming as a hoax. And it's easy for somebody like me to recognize very quickly that that is nonsense. Um, But if you are not really politically aware and you hear that statement or hear Donald Trump in a debate deny that he ever made that claim, uh, what do you do with those kinds of statements? Mm. So people who are not very politically aware 
if somebody accuses Donald Trump of lying and then Donald Trump says, no, you're fake news, what do you do with that? One of two things is the, is the case. Either uh, both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are equally dishonest and the party system is kind of symmetric, or the journalist accusing Donald Trump of lying is just a shill for the Democratic Party. And since there are a lot of accusations, in particular of liberal media bias, it's relatively easy for a voter who doesn't have a lot of prior political knowledge and political sophistication to conclude that it's just liberal media bias and discount the accusation of lying. And in fact, it's actually logical to do that. And that's where a lot of my research has gone is thinking through uh, what are called signaling models about how that works. And if you have a political environment that is kind of asymmetric, where one candidate just lies more than the other, as, for example, Donald Trump lying more than Hillary Clinton, which he did objectively, and you combine that with a complex media environment, it actually becomes logical for voters to just discount the, the commentary about Donald Trump lying. And that actually makes it irrational for journalists to mm. even try to yeah. call out Trump's lies. Well, then, then, yeah, then it's then it so it, it doesn't make any sense to try to call it out. But then to not call it out, they're shirking their duty. So they're yeah, they're in a catch exactly 22. Right. right. So so is are we right. are we at a stage when I mean, in a way, that's super scary, because if yeah. if we're not able to call out people and and like show what facts are without always being called, you know, partisan, then, boy, what how, who is going to be watching the kitchen? Who's going to be taking care of the truth tellers and making sure people are telling uh, truth? Yeah, I think that's a big problem, and I don't know that there, that there is an easy way out, um, or at least I haven't seen one. I mean, the, 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 the basic core problem is that if somebody points out when Trump is lying, which he continues to do in, in really flagrant ways, it's rational for a voter who is not particularly well-informed to discount journalistic criticism of, of that. And the fact that it is rational for voters to do that takes away journalistic incentives to, to call him out. And, and I, 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 I don't see a clear way out. Hmm. Um, the, 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 the journalistic system just hasn't figured out a way to handle somebody who lies this much and couldn't it, uh, it, it yeah couldn't it just be it's a, a i mean it only i mean i to me it's a it's an enormous problem and i one thing you brought up too is truth telling is one thing and it really is almost like president trump has his own list of facts and but the facts are they're they're not objective they 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 almost can just change with the tide and the facts are so changing so much that we can't always keep up with them which is what the journalists are trying to do is state well no you said this this is this here's the real fact but another point of it is is, is ideology in a way that usually we have candidates that are so ideologically extreme and and usually paired in idea in, in ideology that 
that we, we've always had the balance. But with President Trump, there really – there kind of isn't a balance. There isn't an ideology. So which which is harder, do you think, on the journalists, the lack of ideology or the lack of truth? Um, I think they're both difficult. Um, I, I, ideology has been difficult for journalists because – uh, if you look at Congress, uh, Congress is becoming Congress is becoming much more ideologically polarized. Right. This has been a trend that's been going on for decades. Um, for a while, it was relatively easy for journalists to cover, but it got a little bit more difficult starting in the late 1990s and early 2000s because it started to become asymmetric. So if you look at the scores that we use in political science to study uh, congressional ideology, we use a score called a nominate score, which is developed by Keith Poole and Howard Rosenthal. And if you look at those types of scores in Congress based on congressional voting behavior, the Republican Party has moved more to the ideological more to the ideological extreme than the Democratic Party. And as a result of that, you will see things like uh, more use of uh, sort of extreme tactics Hmm. on the Republican side. So, for example, threatening a debt ceiling breach. Yeah, shutting down government. Yeah, government shutdowns, that that type of thing, which, which... uh, which the Republican Party has used more than the Democratic Party, and that's been difficult for Republican or for journalists to cover. And that was actually the start of this project uh, because I started thinking about how journalists are supposed to cover bargaining bargaining situations when one party demands asymmetric concessions, um, and that that in itself is dif- is difficult, even though it is really about ideology rather than truth. But I actually think that it's the same fundamental problem, because anytime you have one party that is breaking the norms more than the other, it creates the same difficulty for Mm. journalists, because they don't have a way to say, this situation is not symmetric. Journalists have been trying to signal to voters that they are nonpartisan by uh, following a norm, which is both parties are the same. They're mirror images. They're equally extreme, equally guilty of all problems. Hmm. And journalists will then wind wind up looking biased anytime they break that norm. So anytime a journalist says, this party is breaking the rules, the other one is not, they look biased. And they do that anytime they say, this party is more extreme, this party is using worse bargaining tactics, this party is lying. I think it's actually the same basic fundamental problem. And it comes down to the fact that we have this journalistic norm of saying both sides do it. Oh, interesting. And both sides yeah. don't always do it. I think it's that norm which constrains journalists in all contexts, which is the basic problem. So when um, – and we'll have to – we'll take a break and come back and address this, Justin. But so, so when President Trump sits there and talks about the media bias, in a way the bias may be perceived as real. But some of that is because the Republican Congress, the Republican Party 
is is more unilaterally breaking rules than um, than the Democratic Party maybe is because we're we there's there's a they the Republican Party may be demanding more asymmetric concessions as you said. Interesting, interesting insight. So it's weird because it it may be what makes us all resonate or many people resonate with the fact that there is a bias, but the bias is also a reality of a bias that's going on with the Republican Party versus the Democratic Party. Interesting stuff. Stick with us, folks. We'll continue the journey trying to understand partisanship and journalism. Is there a future? What is the future for journalists? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Dr. Justin Buechler. He is uh, he is a professor of political science at Case Western University. He studies elections, political parties, and Congress. He has a book that he released in 2011, Hiring and Firing Public Officials, Rethinking the Purpose of Elections. And today he's talking to us about an article he wrote, Does Nonpartisan Journalism Have a Future? Justin, again, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. You you bring up such great points. And as we've been talking about it during the break, it really is um, th- there's this. So the, the nonpartisan media, as you're teaching us, their goal has been to, to show that every that they want to treat both parties equally, that both parties are equally uh, problematic, have equal um, trust issues, have all these things. And, and they're supposed to be this parody. Um, but I guess. One of the dilemmas we're running into and some of the data you're showing is there that maybe the Republican Party is a little more extreme um, in demanding asymmetric concessions was was your terms. And um, so but then as we try to treat them as as equals as a journalist. So it's not like we can sit and report, OK, Donald Trump just made a com- an incomplete statement here. This statement is not actually factually true. And then everyone else is wondering, well, why don't you ever say that about the Democrats? Democrats say things that are not true as well. But if you have a president that's doing it five or six or seven times to one, you can't keep up with it. Yeah, that's right. And that's the basic problem. So, I mean, if you look, for example, at some of some statements that Hillary Clinton made, I mean, she she lied a bunch of times and. Uh, there were there were some some big ones like uh, uh, landing in a helicopter under gunfire. Right. That was one of the ones that got a lot of attention. And as soon as she was called on that statement, she stopped making it. So uh, that was one of the things that got her a pants on fire rating from PolitiFact. And uh, then it just got dropped from her repertoire because that's I, that was sort of the same type of statement that uh, got uh, I think was was it Brian Williams I yeah. momentarily forget yeah it was Brian. Brian yeah they got Brian Williams into trouble and but you compare that then to for example Donald Trump who repeatedly asserted that he always opposed the Iraq War which is just factually untrue there's a recording of him on the Howard Stern show 
saying he supported going into Iraq. And no matter how many times that recording was played, he would just deny, deny, mm. deny. Yeah. And no matter how many times his lies were debunked, he would keep repeating them. And there were always more of them. And you just you, you simply could not find symmetry. But if you report that both sides lie equally, you are then being dishonest. Yeah. And, and especially on any issue, right? On any issue, they, they try to create parity, but if parity doesn't exist, you can't force parity and symmetry. Right. And, right. and the problem is if, 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 both, if, one, if one person is more dishonest than the other and you assert that both people are equally dishonest, then you are not being honest. And that's hmm. the problem. Boy, so, so then you end up as a journalist deciding, okay— so do I want to even get in that game? Plus, not to mention the fact that if you if you push back on Donald Trump, you may get thrown under the bus and your professionalism called into question, your fake news. And we've seen various cases of that, plus even backlash where he would, you know, say things in meetings that are in uh, in events that would even put journalists lives maybe a little bit in risk or in jeopardy. It, so then what decisions now are the journalists having to make? Um, well, I mean, they have to decide uh, how they handle uh, a, a situation when Trump lies. I mean, they can simply ignore it. I mean, part of the problem is that he lies so often that it's just not possible to fact check everything he says. And even when they deal with a Trump lie, uh, the the problem is how aggressively do they pursue it? Do they just call it a lie? There are a lot of people who are uncomfortable with the word lie. I'm using mm-hmm. it a lot right now, but uh, there are a lot of journalistic outlets that simply want to shy away from the word as though it is somehow too aggressive to use the word lie because it is somehow just so strong yeah. uh, that you can't use it because it is impolitic. Um, and... Every journalistic outlet has to decide uh, how how far they're willing to go in in, in dealing with that. Um, it they don't really have any good options right now. Uh, and then we have the basic problem that uh, once they decide that they are going to uh, point out that Trump is lying, they signal bias correctly or incorrectly and audiences will respond accordingly because any audience member any any news consumer who is prone to believe donald trump for partisan reasons will conclude that that journalistic outlet is biased Mm. because if you are a partisan republican uh you you have uh, incentives, psychological incentives to engage in what we call motivated reasoning. And what that means is you have to deal with this cognitive dissonance. It is hard to hold two inconsistent ideas in your head at once. Idea one, Republican Party is good. Idea two, Republican president lies. Holding these two ideas in your head at once is uncomfortable. So one of these ideas has to be sort of pushed out or rationalized away. And the simplest way to deal with that is to say, whatever outlet just told me that the president is lying is fake news. So I'm going to go find another outlet. I'm going to go 
watch Fox News or read a uh, uh, Republican-leaning news site, Republican blog. Hmm. And then you wind up with uh, the at least the potential for a little bit of polarization in the audiences. Now, this is overstated, according to a lot of the research. Uh, a lot of the people who uh, consume news do so as sort of omnivores. They'll, they'll sort of graze from various news sites, whatever crosses their their uh, 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 news feeds from Facebook or whatever. So it is not the case that people just go to one website. The people who do that are very... Uh, um, uh, they're, they tend to be very hardcore partisans, and they're, they're not the ones who are subject to these kinds of processes. But the basic cognitive process of discounting a news story on the basis of that story conflicting with your predispositions, that's something that we've known about in political science and political psychology for a long time. Well, and is, is, it seems like another issue that's creeping up is – because in my head, I would think, well, OK, we'll cover him less. Just cover the president less. I mean, cover the policies, cover China. You, you can cover everything, but just cover the president uh, on each of these issues less, except there's a hankering and a hungering and ratings come by covering President Trump, it seems like. So now then, then you're being driven by, it almost seems, the market to have to cover him to the depth that um, they cover him. Well, it's not just the market. I mean, he is the center of the political system. Uh, there was an argument during the early days of the campaign about whether or not news organizations should cover him and whether or not uh, they were sort of creating a self-fulfilling prophecy of covering him and, and making him into a more viable candidate by covering him. But right now he is the president and uh, he, he gets attention uh, not just from uh the the journalists who consider themselves nonpartisan but he gets attention regardless of what the nonpartisan journalists do he will get attention from fox news and from the other republican aligned media that means he's getting attention that creates political stories that must be covered by the nonpartisan journalists anyway so it's not like they really have that option well do they have the uh, option i mean but it does seem like when he tweets something out that is extreme and is i mean i have a hard time believing that in three years they're going to be covering him with the same level of intensity when he tweets out something that is stupid after 500 tweets that were just crazy it seems like well it depends on the tweet yeah um I, it, it really depends on the tweet, because if he tweets out something that has the potential of creating a major international incident, then they're going to have to cover it. And uh, depending on what happens between now and three and a half years from now, it is possible that a Trump tweet will create an international incident. We don't know because we don't know what kinds of uh, actions he's going to take. I mean, we're, we are still in the very early days of his presidency, and it's still difficult to say uh, what kinds of foreign policy decisions he's going to make. Um, I mean, he, he uh, launched a missile strike in Syria. He dropped a, a Moab in Afghanistan. But uh, given that we don't know a long-term strategy 
that the administration will take in either of those locations. We don't know what kinds of decisions he's going to make, and we don't know what kinds of tweets uh, he might uh, he, he might make and what kinds of uh, consequences there might be. Yeah, give us a give us a, a forecast then. What where do you sense this goes over the next two or three years? Where does journalism turn? How how do you end up playing this journalistic dilemma out? I think political science got burned pretty badly with uh, forecasting in the 2016 election. So uh, I'm not sure I want to make a forecast <laughs> on that. You don't want to go there, do you? Do you sense no. that? Do you sense that journalists then? Are we going to? Are they going to get more partisan or less partisan? Um, well, I, I think we're going to continue to have a complicated uh, media environment. There are going to continue to be a lot of journalists uh, who who have a, a partisan slant to what they do. They're going to continue to be journalists who try to be uh, nonpartisan and try to be objective. But there's a market for all of that, and that's the basic point, is as long as there is a niche in the market for different styles of journalism, different styles of journalism will exist. Do you sense that um, people will get burnt out? Uh, you know, in the muck ra- muckrakers era, do, did people burn out of all of the, you know, the palace intrigue? Is, is there a point where they just are exhausted by it and instead they'd rather just watch Netflix? Um, well, a lot of people do that anyway. I mean, most people don't pay very close attention to politics. This is another thing that uh, political junkies need to remember. Those of us who are obsessed with the day-to-day uh, workings of politics are uh, weird. Mm. Uh, those of us who, who uh, wake up and immediately need to check the news are very strange. Most people uh, pay minimal attention to politics simply because they have busy lives and other things they would rather do. Uh, so um, I, I don't think that uh, there's going to be a burnout because I don't think that most people are paying that close attention. Anyway. Yeah, I think you're right on. I think you're right on. Well, Justin, again, thank you so much for your time, for your insight. Uh, interesting, interesting world we're living in. And uh, partisan politics, nonpartisan journalism, it's – can you imagine having to balance your professionalism, your need to, to go and get the facts and to tell the truth, along with the fact that uh, you have this really, for maybe the first time ever, this asymmetric relationship with the president, you know, where ideology, truth, what has been said in the past doesn't necessarily matter. It doesn't matter. Um, Boy, how do you hold someone down to truth? Crazy times. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you make it through this crazy thing called life. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. You know, it's a great point. for so many that are caught up in the political world to the point that they're looking up, you know, the latest news every few hours, it it maybe it we need to remember that the majority of people don't. The majority of people are doing other things. They have lives. They have children. They have other blogs. They like podcasts. They want or maybe maybe they're just going to Netflix, which isn't uh, which isn't a bad thing either. Uh, Terry's here. He's got some interesting new stats from Netflix. They had their earnings report yesterday, 
And it says the company CEO seems to think that uh, they're going to keep adding to their pile of users, I guess you could call them. That's not probably the best way to yeah, say it. Yeah, I wouldn't it. use but a you, pile. Yeah, it works. <laughs> the streaming service hits 50 million customers, faces stiff competition from Amazon. Um, they, they says they, uh, well, the, the things that caught my eye. One, he was asked, is Amazon or HBO like your main competition? Yeah. And he goes, it's not necessarily Amazon, not necessarily HBO. He says, we're all in this big ocean and we're all just sort of drops of water. So it's not, we're not really affecting each other. What affects us is people go to sleep. If people could just stay up all the time, they'd watch more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because that's – we're just trying to, to – because people are looking at, do I sleep or do I watch something like on Netflix or one of these services? He goes, that's really what we're competing against yeah. is sleep. Yeah. He also says uh, – they, they go, what's the future? He goes, where are your goals going forward? And he goes, well, YouTube streams a billion hours a day. We only stream a billion hours a week, so we have some area to catch up there. Some, they they do. They only, oh, I did not know that. So YouTube is a billion hours a day, yeah. and Netflix, as they say, it's about a billion hours a week total streaming. Now, the part that really hurt my soul to, oh, a, to a core. Oh, boy, your soul's been hurt. What? Netflix signed an exclusive deal with Adam Sandler. Right? This, I know. This is his, nauseating. His movies are horrible. I can't there, stand them. I mean, I mean, there's universally. A few. Well, there's a few way back that were. I mean, yeah, Waterboy. I mean, there's there's some there's a few. The Wedding Singer. Yeah. Th- then he just sort of gave up because there was a threshold where but he now could he's get an audience, right? right? And, and they're exclusively on Netflix. There's one that keeps popping up when I turn on Netflix, and I I saw it, didn't know what it was, so I click on the trailer, and I'm like, oh, stop! <laughs> that was Adam Sandler. Five hundred million hours. <laughs> has been spent watching Adam Sandler movies. I saw yesterday that's it's working. It was seven million man hours to build the Empire State Building, right? That's seventy-one Empire State Buildings, <laughs> and we spent that watching Adam Sandler. See, that's time you can't get back, folks. That's time that's just flushed. But it's a it's an interesting sign of the future that an Adam Sandler can go in, produce a bunch of content for them, and it sells. There's an audience for everything they're finding. Crazy. He just re-signed another oh, deal. Boy. Good stuff. That means more hours of Adam Sandler. Uh, Netflix, folks, it's taking over. We'll take a break. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You ever had somebody say, you know, what do you recommend at the restaurant? What do you recommend here? We were talking earlier about how Donald Trump uh, basically ordered for Chris Christie at a dinner. Basically ordered a mistake. You got to try some of these Trump steaks. And so we I was looking and found this interesting article about uh, from businessinsider.com about just certain things that you, you shouldn't eat ever. And it comes from a, um, a person that spent over 20 years working in food poisoning lawsuits, Bill Marler put together this article, and he has six foods that he simply will not eat anymore. And um, none of them necessarily are like from Chipotle because they keep getting in trouble. Um, check out this list, though. Raw oysters. Just he's not going to do the raw oyster thing. Ben, have you ever had a raw oyster? Oh, he's having one right now. Hmm. 
It sounds good, man. Yeah, they're not bad. You really... Okay, that's not how you eat an oyster. You just kind of more... With the oyster, you just kind of swallow it. You slurp it like that. Yeah. You're chewing it. If you chew it, you're just going to end up chewing it all day. Yeah. Don't eat raw oysters. Marler says that he has seen more foodborne illnesses linked to shellfish in the past five years than in the two preceding decades. And the reason? The culprit? Warming waters. As the global waters are heating up, it's producing microbial growth, which ends up in the raw oyster that uh, you happen to be slurping down. Uh, The second thing he suggests you don't eat, don't eat pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and vegetables. Anything that's pre-washed, pre-cut, careful. You got you got to anything that's been processed, pre-cut, pre-washed, take them out, wash them, do it again. Don't eat raw sprouts, which I couldn't agree more. Why, why is anybody eating sprouts anyway? Actually, I like sprouts, but sprouts, uh, you know, they come with more than thirty bacterial outbreaks primarily salmonella and E. coli in the past two decades. Sprouts, you know, they've got some problems. Watch out for rare meat, obviously. That seems like a no-brainer. You know, but if it bleeds, it leads it's to so the hospital. so good, though. Do you like raw meat? Not raw meat, but rare. Like rare, rare? Pretty rare. Yeah. Do you know what we call that in my neck of the woods? What? You're a carnivore. I'll accept that. <laughs> Watch out. You got you got to get the heat up 160 degrees to kill the bacteria or you're going to get E. coli or salmonella. Uncooked eggs, I wouldn't, you know, don't eat them. Don't do the Rocky Balboa thing. Put it in your smoothie. Buh. Buh. It's a no-brainer. It'll kill you, folks. Raw eggs, watch out. Watch out. And watch out for today's trend. There's a big trend about unpasteurized milk and juices because many are arguing that pasteurization depletes nutritional value. Yeah, okay? It also saves your life. It it makes it so your insides don't try to come out on the outside. It keeps your inners on the inners. It's just better for you. There's a reason Louis Pasteur came to this world. One way, one reason is to make sure that you keep your drink down. So don't drink something that isn't pasteurized, for heaven's sakes. We're talking about restaurants, right? If you want to drink raw milk, you know, right out of the cow, at home, you need a life, not to be rude. You need to do something. Hey, here's another one. Don't eat, don't eat rare pearls. Listen to this story. Out of Issaquah, Washington. I used to live there, you know. Did you? Yeah. They have a really... Did you ever go to this Italian restaurant? No, It's I, called Montalcino Ristorante Italiano. No, I, I've never been there. I don't know if that's how you say it, but that's... It, it sounded right. It sounded like it? a good pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A woman bit down on a rare pearl while eating a meal of clams the other day at a restaurant. She's eating like a clam sauce, probably. Some clam and linguine meal. Mmm. Sounds good. At an Italian restaurant, Lindsay has... Did you know Lindsay? Lindsay and Chris, they live up in Issaquah? No. No. Yeah, they live there. 
I thought you'd know, just because you live there. It's a big town. Uh, they were eating at Montalcino Ristorante Italiano, and recently when she bit into something hard into her entree, Haz says that she wasn't sure what it was, uh, pulled it out, put it in her pocket, and went home to do some research. She took it to a gemologist who determined it was a quahog purple pearl worth about 600 bones. Pretty lucky lady. I mean, sure, it's a molar. Sure, she shattered a molar. But she done found herself a pearl. That's pretty neat. Normally, you'd say, waiter, something crunchy just broke my tooth. But this young lady, smart, smart, she just took it home. She says, and the owner of the Ristorante, Montalcino Ristorante, Cindy Nardone, says she's so happy for Haz. That's great. She should have kept the pearl and then asked for a refund on her meal. Not a bad idea. Just trying to help. Is that how we do it in Issaquah? Yeah. Milk all the money you can. (laughs) She may make it into a necklace, by the way. That is cool. That is great. Something you can't always do when you find something strange in your meal. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's fun to talk to somebody that coaches these candidates. Some of them are so bad at uh, knowing what to do and how to do it. Can you imagine being paid by somebody to, I don't know, change how a Bernie Sanders does stuff or how a Donald Trump? Hey, Don, we, um, we need you to not... Say some of the things you're saying. (laughs) What? What? Well, you know, the whole Muslim thing. Could you just tone down that rhetoric? And like uh, we've heard, he, he may not even believe some of this stuff. Because it works. It works. You know, there's the whole Times... New York Times uh, interview that he did that came up in a, one of the debates two or three, four debates ago, where the big question is, what is what did he say off the record? Because with the journalist, he was saying something off the record. And many say what he was saying is he was saying it's not quite. I'm not going to keep talking about this wall thing. In the end, it's like not. It may not matter what they're saying, but it seems to matter to us, doesn't it? It seems to matter to us. What he, what he was talking about was uh, what with the New York Times, something around the idea of he's not really into this, uh, all the his immigration stances he's taken. Yeah. That he doesn't really want to go that far with it, but he did in the speech because it, right. as you said, it brought people with him. And that is there a, is there a tape of this? But the New York we, Times is like, it's up to Donald it's like Trump. Donald, we'll release, release it. Yeah, we'll release everything he said. Yeah. And he's like, no, I believe too much in the freedom of press <laughs> <laughs> to keep their to keep their secrets, especially when they're mine. But what, what it might be telling us is people will say anything to get elected, right? We're even finding out in a lot of these states where Donald is doing well, immigration's not even an issue. It's not even an issue. But what it might be that people like is the fact that Donald seems so passionate about what he's saying. He's a salesperson, and he might be just selling his message better. 
He may not even believe in the message necessarily. Many question if he is conservative, right? But he'll sell it. He'll sell it. And so uh, be careful. Check your gut on that and go get the information you need. You can get it from enough sources. And it doesn't mean he's just a bad guy either, these politicians. It might just be that they're, they really want to win. Interesting, folks. We'll take a break. Stick with us. More ideas, more tools next hour to help you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. An eye for an eye will only make the world blind, Mahatma Gandhi once said. Today, we're discussing revenge. Why do we seek it? Does revenge make us actually feel better? And here to answer these questions is psychology professor Dr. Susan Boone. She's an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Calgary and uh, is a social psychologist by training, is passionate about the topic of personal relationships and uh, has a particular fascination with their darker side of relationships. Susan, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. This is, uh, I think, a very interesting topic of revenge. Um, Now, talk to us. Why, I mean, is revenge, it seems like it's a very kind of natural thing that we're drawn to as humans. Absolutely. There's all kinds of evidence that it's uh, evolutionarily based and that we're not, it's not just people, it's not just humans who take revenge. There's certain animal species where there's evidence of that. So it seems to be something that's kind of hardwired into our systems and there's evidence of it in the historical records as far back as it goes in pretty much every culture. And what are we seeking with revenge? Is, are we trying to, is it about equalizing the injustice? Is it about inflicting the same pain? What is it we're after when we're in seeking revenge? I think there's a variety of different goals that it can serve, but both of those for sure are, are big reasons that people take revenge, big motivations. There's a number of others as well. What are some of the others? Uh, sometimes, at least our participants, you know, and, and we're talking with people and we're talking with them face-to-face on some occasions, so it's a little hard to know if you can take what they say as the gospel truth, but sometimes they say it's about trying to deter behavior, you know, trying to make sure that someone doesn't do the same thing over again. Sometimes they talk about how they're trying to induce empathy in the other person, in the person who provoked them or harmed them, by giving them a taste of their, their own medicine so that the, the person who harmed them knows what it feels like. And again, sort of the idea of educating them. So, you know, I don't want you to, uh, I want you to know what this feels like so you don't do it to me again, so you realize it's hurtful, it's harmful. Um, sometimes we talk about doing it for pro-social reasons, so less so in relationships. You don't find a whole lot of this in, in, in when we speak with people about revenge in their romantic relationships, but particularly some of the work on workplace revenge suggests that they're doing it sort of you know, to, to help themselves and their co-workers out. You know, when they've got a, a nasty boss and, and they, they want to do something to sort of send that boss a message that helps not only them, but also their co-workers in that organization. Interesting. So that is, I mean, you know, we're we're going to make it, we may go down in flames, but we're going to make it so the boss doesn't keep doing this to everyone else. But you brought up uh, interpersonal relationships, marriages, things like that. Revenge takes place in those relationships as well. It might be more subtle, it seems like, but, you know, ignoring somebody that's that has hurt your feelings or uh, rejecting, you know, touch 
and uh, love and if if somebody has offended or hurt us. Talk about um, revenge in relationships like marriage. Uh, we haven't personally studied married couples. Most of our participants are in dating relationships, but we I, I did have uh, an interview one time with a woman who wanted to get even with her husband and chose not to, which is a good thing because she'd contemplated killing him, actually. But yeah, wow. there's every reason to believe that it happens. You know, if it happens in dating relationships, I don't see any particularly good reason it wouldn't happen in marital relationships. And of course, there's all kinds of uh, the stuff that makes it to the news is often occurring between roman- uh, married partners or former married partners. There was just a case up here in down east in Canada somewhere where someone burnt down uh, ex-husband's house, I think is mm. what happened. Or yeah. it might have been the ex-wife's house. I cannot quite recall. Is it, uh, does something come over somebody that's seeking revenge? Is it, do they actually lose some of their competency as they're so caught up in the need and the desire to seek revenge? You know, I think that's a common thing to think, but I'm, you know, I think it may in some cases. You know, certainly if if it's a very, very severe provocation and the person responds, you know, in a rage, in a fit of rage, and they're, and they're not thinking straight, I think that's possible. But certainly in our research, the kinds of things that people were reporting having done or in some some of our studies having done to them were much milder and more mundane and occasionally not taken not enacted right away. You know, they had a little bit of time to calm down. So I don't think, I mean, sometimes they had, there was a little bit of planning involved. I don't think that they're necessarily, I think in most cases, they're, they're not sort of overcome with rage and not mm. thinking clearly. Yeah, it's premeditated in a way. I, they're well, they're yeah, planning yeah. it. In some cases, yes. Is um, They always say that uh, revenge is sweet, but in your research, a lot of the data shows it's probably more bittersweet. Talk about talk about the bitter side of it. What what does come of revenge, and what is does it still turn out sweet for people? Um, most of that research is not my research, and Steve Yoshimura's research, the lead author on the article that uh, that you heard of. But what we think may be going on there is that people's sense as to what they will gain from revenge is just not it's just not accurate. So for one thing. If you think about it, you know, that you're responding to a provocation. You're responding to something that's already happened. Well, nothing you do after it's happened can undo what was done to you. And so part of it, we think, is that there's a, a misunderstanding, a misunderstanding of what, what can be achieved or just how good it will feel to see the other person suffer. And also in terms of the, the, the likelihood that it's not going to be that sweet is that there are potential consequences both for you as the Avenger and for the person, the target, the avengee, you, you may take revenge in such a way that the effects are more severe than you intended or that you wanted. There could be other people that are harmed, and, you know, that may be something that you didn't count on when you first decided to take revenge and are feeling perhaps guilty about. There are strong social norms against revenge. It's not something, especially in certain kinds of relationships, it's something that's deeply frowned upon. So there are self esteem and self-image concerns, public self-image concerns. Perhaps you are now tainted in the eyes of your, your social network as the kind of person who's vindictive and petty and who won't let things go. There are all kinds of reasons that it, it could end up being something other than uh, the victory, the, vin- the vindication that you're hoping for. Oh, wow. I, and I never thought of so many of those that, yeah, there's, it's, there is a backlash socially we we then don't trust people that uh, seek revenge, except it's uh, then it's such a natural 
it's such a natural phenomenon, huh? We, it's natural to all of us, and yet we don't trust those that overtly seek it out. Yeah, it's, you know, in, in, in contemporary Western society, at least, this is not, you know, revenge is something that's, it's really quite, quite viewed quite negatively. And so to be known as the kind of person who engages in revenge, that's, that's a negative thing. We're currently in, engaging in some early, early research looking at revenge via social media, so through Facebook and Twitter and things like that. And one of the reasons that we think this is a really interesting new way of getting revenge is that depending on how you go about it, you can remain anonymous or it could be ha- perhaps be less clear that you're the person that's undertaking the revenge. And that might diminish some of those concerns around developing a negative reputation. But absolutely, given that people view revenge quite dimly, they condemn it in, in a, you know, when it's, when it's real and happening in, in your social network, we're not usually like, yay, you know, we, we see it in the movies, we're like, wow, that's great when, when uh, Luke Skywalker gets his revenge against the Emperor, you know, that's, that's good. But in real life, we don't seem to find it quite so uh, enjoyable and such a good thing. So people are concerned about the, that social image and, and, and having a, a tainted reputation, a damaged reputation, a tarnished reputation, because you've done something that other people think it was wrong. How do you not get caught up in the wave of, because the pain, I mean, I I see it a lot with divorcing couples and Mm -hmm. who caught their partner having an affair or doing something and um, they just have such a hard time of getting rid of the thought. So they keep thinking, I guess, of ways to make this person pay. But I, I guess you can get to a point where making someone pay makes it so you never live. It certainly could. Yeah, if you're consumed by thoughts of revenge or just, you know, really find yourself preoccupied with them, that, that would be a very difficult situation to find yourself in. And, you know, what the research is suggesting here is that even if you took revenge, you're not going to feel any better. And now you've got all kinds of reasons, particularly if anyone else knows that you've done this, you know, now your, your image is tar- tarnished and maybe you're not so proud of yourself for, for giving in to the urge and... Um, you know, there's, there's potentials for, the, for that to sort of compound. It doesn't really reduce your anger. It may not reduce your anger. You may not feel any better about what you've done now that they are suffering. Mm. Even if you do, you've got to contend with the fact that people know what you've done. Well, and it's like the two wrongs don't make a right. Exactly. And, but, but then, too, there are real people that need to be stopped from doing, um, you know, painful things to each other. It, it almost seems like... There is an appetite for this as there's other – there's television shows like Cheaters or other shows where they they go almost socially try to shame people for what they've done or are doing. And um, is, is there any social benefit to revenge? Well, that's, that's a very good question. And the research does suggest that there, that there are. There are some um, – some people who study revenge who think that revenge can serve important informal social regulation um, purposes. So, you know, something like shaming someone. I mean, if you're not directly harming them, if you're if you're taking them down a notch or two by by highlighting what they've done publicly, that doesn't necessarily imply that you're a vindictive person. If they cheat on you and you cheat back in return, okay, you're not looking so good. But if all you do is bring to the broader attention of your social network how they've mistreated you. You know, that could be considered revenge. Uh, a fair bit of what our participants do when it's relational revenge is that kind of reputation defamation is the word that we use. So they spread gossip or they, um, 
sometimes they will share secrets that they've been told. That kind of thing doesn't necessarily make you look bad, but it clearly communicates to the your social network what this person has done hmm. wrong. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's one obvious benefit there. And I guess part of it's crossing the line, right? Because, I mean, it's one thing to defame someone's reputation. It's another thing to just tell the truth. And, right. you know, like, yeah, he had an affair. And not, yeah. I'm not going to keep that secret anymore, um, but I'm also not going to spread it. I guess that's the line that every person has to make individually. Well, we had a, a participant in one of our earliest studies who, you know, I think even she was starting to realize that she'd crossed the line, that she'd gone too far, that she should have been over it by now. Um, she, Her ex-boyfriend at the time had unregistered her from all of her courses at university, unbeknownst to her, of Ooh. course. So she shows up for final exams, ready to write, does all that studying and everything, gets there, is not allowed to write because she's not actually registered in the course anymore. So she lost an entire term. So she was very angry and did all the right things in terms of bringing it to the university's attention. And the, the ex-boyfriend was, he was silly enough to have done this at a at a public computer terminal where he was on camera, so they knew it was him, so they did disciplinary action, but she didn't feel it was severe enough. And even a couple of years later, she was really, really angry about this. So she did things like write to people, to prospective employers and prospective graduate programs and things like that, huh. and tell them what he had done. And this is a couple of years later when she's talking to us, and she was having problems in her current relationship because she clearly wasn't over this. Yeah, she wasn't moving on. Yeah, she wasn't moving on. And so, you, you, you know, that line between, you know, at what point did her decision to share with others what he had done and how he had harmed her, at what point did it cross over, like you're saying, from, from tr- telling the truth to sort of an excessive form of revenge. I mean, a little bit of letting people know that he'd done this would, I think, you know, few people would say was inappropriate. But at one point, you know, how many months or years later does it become a problem for an indication that that she needs to work through her feelings as well as, you know, maybe sort of, it might appear to other people as a warning sign that, wow, you know, this woman, this woman doesn't forget she no. certainly doesn't forgive. No, exactly. And it doesn't necessarily – in a weird way, it, it just makes her more angry, more uh, more dark and more pain that she has to now source through and, and, and push through. We'll take a break and continue this discussion with Susan Boone. She is a professor of um, psychology and social psychology talking to us um, about revenge. It isn't always sweet, folks, and a lot of times we can't determine how we will actually feel after uh, seeking revenge with somebody. So maybe forgiveness is the, the attitude we ought to take. We'll take a break, come back, find out some more information about forgiving instead of seeking revenge. Up next, stick with us. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about revenge. It isn't always sweet, and uh, joining us to talk about it on the line is Professor Susan Boone. She's a professor at the University of Calgary and is in the Department of Psychology there. Also has a wonderful website, personalrelationships.ca, and is uh, really just helping us understand this issue of revenge, which is such a natural thing. 
but doesn't necessarily pay out the sweet uh, the sweet results that we we might think it does. Uh, thank you again, Susan, for being with us. You're welcome. When you um, when you look at it. Uh, the, the, I guess part of it is that there's really a system of play going on here. And do you see – where do you see um, – I mean, I know symmetry – you want – it sounds like what people want from revenge really where it, where it seems to help if it does help at all is if I see the person change that is harming people. Mm-hmm. Is that is that the ultimate reason we're seeing – I mean where we derive – more pleasure, I guess, healthier pleasure is if we can see that there's change. I think that's definitely one of the factors that can contribute to that sense of pleasure with it. I think it also depends, is this an act, you know, are you the person who suffered originally or are you watching, are you an observer? Are you, are you present when, when someone else is, is taking revenge and you weren't the original victim? There's a little bit of work looking at the aesthetic appeal of revenge. And I think that that aesthetic appeal would be different if, if you were the original victim or if you're just watching. So if you're looking at movies and things like that or stories that people tell each other about revenge, then it's less so about the person changing and more about, you mentioned symmetry earlier. So proportionality of consequences, for example, is very important, the extent to which there's a reasonable calibration between the harm that was done to the victim and the harm that the victim then meets upon the the, the original perpetrator. But if you're looking at when you yourself are the victim, and so you're retaliating, you're taking revenge, then I think it's, the research is definitely suggesting that it's important that, that that sense of sweetness, that sense of satisfaction, psychological satisfaction or pleasure at, at what you've done is definitely heightened if that message has come across, if the, the person on the receiving end, the target of the revenge, understands what is being done and why it's being done, and if they then... Um, perhaps commit to changing their behavior. I mean, in a relationship context, if it's an ongoing relationship, then that seems to be really important. People are more likely to say that the revenge that they took had a positive outcome if it changed the partner's behavior in a positive way, exactly as you suggested. Interesting. And I guess you just have to keep the revenge in check. Right. I think so. I think that's that's a really, really important thing. And of course, there's all kinds of psychological processes that that complicate that process of of trying to calibrate appropriately and and you know match match the degree of harm that's done, been done. And for one thing, when you're the victim, uh, you tend to perceive whatever's been done to you, the wrongdoing, is more severe than the person who actually took those actions. So the offender thinks that the harm that they've caused is less severe than you do. So when then you retaliate, of course, you're retaliating in, in concert with what your perception was. And it's likely to come across to the target, to the person who was the original offender, as more severe than what they did. So we have a sort of natural inbuilt bias that would tend to promote cycles of revenge that escalate. Hmm. Yeah, that's... Um... Boy, that interpretation is a big deal. And especially it almost seems like you got to manage your interpretation, but also you have to manage kind of the reactivity of it. So it's not coming out of your most reactive self. And then I guess to me that would change the definition. So it's now – to me, revenge is uglier versus – you know, consequences or other things, if I thought it out, played it out, made the right interpretation, did it in a healthier way, still wanted to have the long-term relationship and kept that in play, 
then I might not call it revenge anymore. I would just call it, you know, learning. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you raise a really good point there because in our original set of interviews, I think there were only three people that used the word revenge. We were very careful not to. We asked people to tell us about a time when they'd gotten even ah. with a romantic partner or they'd gotten back at a romantic partner. And uh, I believe there were only three people that spontaneously of their own decision used the word revenge. And if I remember properly, two of them used it to say, well, I didn't get revenge. You know, they uh. denied that what they were doing was revenge. So I, I think, you know, when we do this work, we're often very, very careful in the language that we use. And it's because we think that there's sort of a, you know, the minute you use the word revenge, I, I, I like to sort of use the analogy of capital R revenge and little r revenge. Yeah, there you go. And, you know, so when you think of, of revenge, the kind of stuff that hits the media, you know, you're looking at Lorena Bobbitt right. and, you know, slicing body parts off and, or, you know, burning yachts and burning houses and, and branding people and, you know, very violent, sometimes murderous acts. I mean, the, te- the stuff that hits the news is, is, is extreme. And so that's what comes to mind. So if you ask people, you know, when's the last time you got revenge? Well, they, if they think with the capital R, then they're like, well, never, you know, I would never mm-hmm. do that. We had all kinds of people also being very, very clear to us that they'd never been physical when they'd taken revenge. So as you had mentioned earlier, it's more things like giving people the cold shoulder or spreading a rumor or giving them the silent treatment, um, you know, deliberately being late when they know the person knows they don't like them being late. It was those sort of milder, more mundane kind of everyday actions is what we found in our research. Yeah. That, you know, especially, in, especially in relationships, in romantic relationships, especially especially when they were ongoing ones. I mean, you do have to be, like you said, very, very careful. If you want that relationship to persist after you get even or take revenge, then you've got to be very careful in determining what you're going to do because you send, you do send clear messages yeah. when, you, when you take this action. If it, if, if it can be tied back to you and the person on the receiving end knows that you're the one that did it and you're wanting to maintain a relationship with them, then you've got to be careful that that message isn't something like, I don't value you. I will treat you any old way I feel like if you cross me. You know, I'm not a person to be messed with. I mean, some of those messages are kind of strong, kind of harsh, and a partner ought to run away at the first sign of those if, if those are the messages you're sending. Yeah, and if you're, I mean, if your motives and response aren't aligned to your values and your principles, you're going to pay for your revenge anyway. You're, yeah. you're just going to keep suffering. Yeah, or if, or if they reveal those motives and principles to be vindictive and petty and unforgiving and so on and so forth and, and disrespectful of the other individual, then they will, they'll, they'll, make that, they'll make those decisions accordingly. They'll say, you know, I'm, I'm not into this. And in one of the studies with Steve, we asked people what they'd learned from being the victims or the targets of revenge. And that's what some people learned, that you know, it's not worth having a relationship with that person. Mm. They're the kind of person who can't forgive. They're the kind of person who's vindictive and petty, and you know, I don't want to be with them. I, I know a lot of your work, um, your research is around, and, and, um, is around this idea of forgiveness. How does forgiveness and unforgiveness tie into revenge? You know, that's a really interesting question, and interestingly enough, when, when I look at those things, I tend not to look at them in concert. So we've never really asked people, you know, you took revenge, why didn't you forgive? Or you forgave, why didn't you take revenge? But they're clearly tied together, and one of the really interesting things that some people have found in their work is that there's, 
nothing saying that you can't do both. You maybe can't do them simultaneously. I mean, obviously, forgiving and, and spanking someone for their bad behavior at the same time seems a little bit incompatible. But there is some work suggesting that in, in the real world, real married couples, real dating partners, don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, a little bit of punishment that fits the crime and then forgiving you after I know that, you know, when I know, when I'm sure that you know what you've done is wrong, now I can forgive you. And I guess the one thing I would say in terms of the literature is that this, this is a bit, I need to be a little bit careful when I say this, but there's, there's some evidence that forgiveness is maybe not always the best course of action if you want your romantic partner to learn what they've done wrong. Because so often when we forgive, we don't, a lot of it's just sort of left unspoken, right? You don't go and say, I forgive you. Right. The person doesn't say, please forgive me. I mean, that can happen. But the research shows that that's fairly rare. So forgiveness tends to be more indirect. And it's kind of like just because things go back to the way they were. And depending on what's been done and how much negative interaction, negative behavior is going on in that relationship, if things just kind of return to normal, the partner who's committing these wrongdoings, whose behavior is, is routinely upsetting you, may not get the message. They may not realize that what they're doing is wrong and it upsets you. And so sometimes a little bit of, you know, you want to call it revenge, you want to call it punishment, you want to call it getting back. You know, I don't exactly know what to call it in every instance. And we, we debate among ourselves, revenge researchers, you know, what's yeah. the difference between revenge and punishment? Um, but sometimes, there, like you said, there need to be consequences. And, and it's okay for there to be a consequence. Some of this research is starting to suggest that sometimes it's better if there's a consequence so that the person learns I that, agree. that educational function, that deterrence function, only if they know what they've done wrong, only if they know that what they did hurt you, can they then choose, if they wish, to change that behavior. It's a and system, if, right? And if the system never gets any feedback, exactly. real feedback that it needs to change exactly. because we forgive so quickly. I mean, I guess – so there is a difference between I can forgive and feel love towards you again and still you need to go get help about what you did. Absolutely. Or you need to know that it's not appropriate and that, you know, that, you know, I forgive you this time. If you try it again, I'm sorry. You know, yeah. That, that's, yeah. Yeah, I love that. There's, there's absolutely. And that's healthy, right? I mean, healthy means there has to be actual learning, actual change taking place, not just words being. And I guess this is what's so complicated about all of this, Susan, is just the terms we use. Like even when you make the comment, and now I could see why you have to be careful saying it, that forgiving isn't always the key. Like it's not always best, but it. you're right. It's, there's more to life than forgiving. It's also forgiving and learning and changing and growing. And we just use the terms and then the terms kind of mess us up. Like revenge is a term. It's just a word. But you can have big R, little r revenge, yeah. and it impacts big piece or little piece. Yes. And and there's there are differences. If you, specifically, specifically with forgiveness, there hasn't been much research yet. I'm not aware of any research looking at what revenge means to people, which is now you're making me think of, of a That's interesting, there. yeah. But when it comes to forgiveness, there's actually been a handful of studies looking at, you know, how do, how do real people define forgiveness? And one of the things that's, that's uh, really clear is they don't define it the same way that, that researchers do. And there are these beliefs out there in the general public that sort of to forgive is to forget. Right. Or to forgive means that you've got to reconcile with that person. You've got to stay with them. You've got to still be friends. You've got to still be romantic partners. Things have to go back to normal, back to the way they were. And researchers and, and, and forgiveness scholars would say, no, 
you know, that's that, you know, there's, there's forgiving and then there's reconciling. And those are two different things. And sometimes you can forgive and never, ever tell that person. You can forgive within yourself and move on uh, in a positive direction in your own life without ever communicating that forgiveness to the other person. So true. Susan, awesome stuff. Susan Boone's her name. Go check out uh, her website, personalrelationships.ca. And uh, you can get some great insight there as well. And uh, keep it up, folks. Remember, revenge, it's just a lot of it's about the terms, but it's, it's more about the spirit you feel. Are you seeking to help truly or just hurt? If you hurt people, you're going to keep feeling pain. Trust me. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. When we come back, we'll be talking spring cleaning with Caitlin Thomas. Back in a bit. Spring is in the air, folks. The Easter Bunny has come and gone, and the sun has decided to come out full-time now, which also means one thing, spring cleaning. Why is this something we do uh, during the springtime and not the wintertime? Caitlin Thomas is here with us to help us uh, talk about it and understand a little bit more. Caitlin, are you a spring cleaner? I am a... Well, kind of, yeah. Yeah, I'm a spring cleaner. See, it used to be... But guess what else I am? What? I'm an aunt. Yeah, you have a brand new cute little baby niece. I do. Niece. I'm excited. What's I her name? I just had to say that. Her name's Maxwell. Maxwell. Yeah. She'll be a little Max. Little Max. Anyways, I just had to say that because I'm super excited. We've all been up in my house since about 4.30 this morning. How cool. So it happened last night. The, yeah, really early this morning. This morning. Mm-hmm. How great. Yay. Congratulations so spring to you and your sister. really is a time of new birth. It Look really is. And it's a weird time where we... We have to spring clean. Yeah, it's this time where we feel, and I always think it's funny, like, why is it when all of a sudden the sun comes out that we feel this need? So I looked it up and it said, spring cleaning comes, there's actually history to it, from the days when homes were heated by fireplaces. Yeah. And efforts were made to prevent heat from escaping, right? So the coming of spring in warm weather was an opportunity to air the house and clean it of the soot and all the grime accumulated over the winter months. Ah. So that's why they would open up the windows and, like, clean out their house because they were getting rid of all this so that they Well, I remember as a child because my mother grew up in a place that was probably heated by a coal or a, uh, you know, wood-burning stove. Wood-burning stove. And so we would open up all of our windows. We'd vacuum everything. We'd wipe down all the walls. Mm -hmm. You'd dust everything. And the funny thing is we have better filtration. We have better stuff going on. So you may not need to wipe down every single wall, every single part of your house. But it's like a tradition that's kind of just carried on. You used to carry the, the carry the rugs outside, and you'd have to beat yes. the rugs with a. Well, yeah. and they said that many of us still enjoy the opportunity provided by spring to let in the fresh air because mm-hmm. it is um, clean our windows and wash the floor under the refrigerator and things that we just don't right. do. Right. Um, as well as other difficult to reach places. Another reason for cleaning taking place in spring is that warmer weather and longer days work as a stimulant for a lot of people to become more active. Mm, there you go. So it's like the sun comes out, the days are longer, and we just something it just literally stimulates us to do more things. We're like, I got to get busy. I got to get doing something. So I it's have some idea. spring okay, cleaning yeah. tips for all yeah. of my, you know, stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home dads or anyone that does or the like cleaning. Or like on the weekend, we could get everybody involved in these. Right, or the kids. Yeah. Um, some fun ones. So the best – did you know that the best refrigerator cleaner is a combination of salt and soda water? Did not know that. Yeah, you can mix them and the bubbling combines – um, to make, like, a really good cleaner for the inside of your fridge. And then you get in there and start washing it down? Yeah. Okay. So clean your screens from uh-huh. your window with a scrap of carpet. 
Ah, there you go. That's I a don't great know. idea. It makes a powerful brush and removes all the dirt. I don't. I was that was an interesting one that I found online. I was like, oh, mom. That's a I, great this idea. is one for my mom. Hi, mom. I hope you're listening, even though you're tired. So we probably ought not cut out the carpet <clears throat> out of the middle no, of the carpet. No, go get a carpet sample. Okay. Yeah, go get a sample. Get out a little. Okay. <clears throat> um, if the drapes are looking dirty, take them off the window um, and run them through the air fluff cycle in the dryer with a wet towel. The wet towel will pull off the dust. Great idea. For 15 minutes and then hang them back on the windows immediately. Holy cow. Look That's that. if you have drapes. Right. If you have, I don't know how many people have drapes, yeah. but. What do you I do with your blinds if your blinds are looking a little worn out? You get one of those Swiffer. Picker uppers. <laughs> yeah. Not like the mobs, but they yeah. have like the dusters. Clean them off. Yeah. Um, clean the blades of your ceiling fan by covering them with a coat of furniture polish. Oh, really? Interesting. So huh? you cover them after? Yes. Yeah, so you wipe off the excess and lightly buff it. Okay. So you put the furniture polish on top and then you wipe it all off and like Yeah. I don't dare turn my fan on because I think there's a lot of dust on the top of it and I just don't want to create a dust storm. Yeah. Dust devil. Yeah, it was just gross, right? Yeah. If you've well, ever really taken the time to look up there, you're like, ew. Let's yeah, not do that. I can't believe I'm like circulating that. Right. Sometimes comforters, blankets, and pillows don't need to be cleaned, but they do need to be aired out. Um, so just take them outside and hang them on the clothesline. Clothesline? Who has a clothesline anymore? One. Make one. That's true. Yeah. Because then they get they smell all nice. Oh the yeah, and they just air. get the Febreze and just spray it all and everything. It's just a good time just to feel breathe. good again. It is great advice, Happy Caitlin spring. Thomas, and congrats to your new baby, Thank Maxwell. You. I'm so excited to meet niece. Her. Good stuff. Caitlin Thomas is her name, and uh, she's here every week. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.